Yeah, I mean, it took me a long time to realize that a letterboxed edition was not, like, cropped. You know, I assumed as a kid that meant it was cropped so it looked like a movie theater on your TV. And I was like, give me the whole image. Yeah, you're Little just like every other idiot American who's <laughs> yeah. like, fill my TV up, you know? <laughs> yeah. like, you're not, but you don't want to do that to David Lean, you know? There's something called composition, you know? Yeah, It took him a lot of years to just figure out what if we just changed the, the shape of a TV? Yeah. You know? Like, <laughs> wow. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, wow. The truth is, guys, starting to get on my It's hot. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Gauntlet. My name is Ryan Saunders. I'm one of your hosts, and I'm joined here today with... Eric Marsh. And... Andrew Stasiulis. The Gauntlet, for those who have may not have listened to it before, is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us is tasked with selecting a theme. That was me this time around. And the other two hosts are challenged with finding films in response to that theme. And so specifically this week, I was... I, I've been reading a lot of short stories lately. Raymond Carver, Donald Barthelme, um, and a few others. And whenever I read a short story, I love how oftentimes, you know, a good short story sometimes is about the length of a film. You sit there and you're sitting there for maybe 90 minutes or a little bit less, you know, perfectly like 82 minutes, right? Like the dream film runtime. It's about as long as it takes to read like a good meaty short story. And I was thinking about the history of how films have been adapted from short stories and how it's obviously notably different than the way films are adapted from novels, which is a novel adaptation is usually the process of subtraction while the adaptation of a short story in many cases is the process of addition, right? And so I I challenged both of you to bring me films that were adapted from short stories, and I think both are very interesting in relation to that topic because they take very different approaches. One of them is a short story that is primarily a single scene when, when reading the story, so the film then builds 80 other minutes around that single scene. And then the other short story is more long form and elusive in its storytelling. um, And there's little gaps and labyrinths that you will be lost within. And so this film responds in a very different way in in its adaptation. So, you know, we'll just do what we typically do. Let's uh, start with the earlier film. So Andy, tell us about what you picked this week. Well, uh, I think you put it so uh, brilliantly in that introduction, Ryan, the difference of subtraction and, and addition. I hadn't quite thought of it in those terms, but damn, you really just, just nailed it. Uh, <laughs> so for me, in my selection process, uh, I was going through some of the, the authors uh, that I'm, I'm quite fond of, that I know have had a lot of their stories adapted into into features and initially i went to my my probably my favorite my wheelhouse just simply because of 
so many of the movies I love that have been made from this author. I originally went to H.P. Lovecraft, you know, and I was like, this is the king of that. You know, how many of his stories are, are three pages long and were made into great 90-minute horror movies. And, and, and certainly, Stuart Gordon had made quite a few of those that I, I, I really admire. But very familiar with the great Stuart Gordon, H.P. Lovecraft adaptations. So I thought, how about one of Stuart Gordon's other adaptations? And this pushed me to his short story adaptation of Edgar Allan Poe's The Pit and the Pendulum from 1991. The story, I guess is a good way to start, is, as you mentioned, yeah, basically a, a single scene. I think it's it's uh, less than 20 pages, and really it is just a man who has, we, we surmise in, in Poe's story, uh, a man who has been arrested by the Spanish Inquisition and awakens in a, a dark, a pitch black environment. And much of the, the, the original story is about this man just sort of trying to figure out where he is to make sense of the space that he finds himself uh, imprisoned in. And uh, really, that's that's the story. Uh, he, he discovers that there's a pit, there's a, a bottomless pit, <laughs> and then at a certain point is drugged and strapped to some sort of torture apparatus that has a, a massive pendulum, a razor-sharp pendulum, swinging above him. And that's really the the drama of the story is, is, will this man be sliced in half by this pendulum or not? To, to, you know, avoid spoilers, I won't exactly tell everyone who hasn't read the story what ultimately happens. But, but we will more focus on the film that was built from this 20-page description of a man tied to a table. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, Stuart Gordon... Uh, has built basically a very elaborate backstory for this single scene. And his version of the story, his, his edition, focuses largely on the twisted character of Torquemada, the Grand Inquisitor of that notorious uh, time in, in history. Uh, and Lance Henriksen plays Torquemada in in one of the most like deranged performances yeah. uh, in a career of his, you know, that, that was filled with, with very interesting uh, and twisted characters. But really, I, I have to say, I think for Lance Henriksen, this is, this is absolutely the, the, the pinnacle of deranged, twisted, over-the-top nastiness. So the film for Stuart Gordon uh, sort of builds itself around Torquemada and his obsession with a woman named Maria and her husband. And in his twisted psychosexual desire, he, he imprisons her, accuses her of witchcraft, uh, and then uh, really explores his feelings around this woman. And uh, yes, it does all, of course, build to the pit and the pendulum from the story. There's a lot of really interesting delights found in this film. I think it's one of Stuart Gordon's lesser known, maybe or lesser appreciated films, certainly compared to 
Reanimator or From Beyond, but this one, to me, uh, it had been a very, very, very long time since I seen it, and I'm I'm glad I revisited because, uh, my goodness, it is nasty, it's gross, it's grimy, it's filthy, it's got a lot of uh, really, really, really fun elements to to explore. A lot of fun additions, as you would say, yes, to the story. <laughs> So that's what I brought to the table. Thank you. Thank you. Marsh, what did you bring? This was really the first thing that came to my mind. And this is also, I think, an underseen and underappreciated film from a a, a well-known director. And this is a film that I accidentally stumbled upon one day in the video store many years ago as a a shipment of DVDs or just like a box of DVDs had appeared in the store. (laughs) And we were like, oh, what are these, you know? And, and one of them had this film, Death and the Compass, from 1996, written and directed by Alex Cox. And the film is, of course, an adaptation of the short story by the great Argentinian writer Jorge Luis Borges. And because of that, the film is a phantasmagoria, a labyrinth, a hallucination of kinds uh, that focuses on the story of Detective Eric Lonroe, as played by, as the back of the DVD I have says, Peter Boyle. Everybody loves Raymond, comma, taxi driver. (laughs) The film is told in a non-linear way. It is a very complexly constructed film, as I think you would perhaps expect from a, a Borges adaptation. And so the frame sort of narrative of the film is through the uh, ramblings of Alex Cox, regular Miguel Sandoval, playing Trevoranis, the former commissioner of city detectives, who is musing about Detective Eric Lonroe and his uh, untimely fate and disappearance. And ultimately, to you know, save a lot of gobbledygook here in my intro, I will just say this. It is sort of a deconstruction of a murder mystery story in many ways. And so uh, Sandoval is recalling the tale of, of Lenro, Peter Boyle, as he tries to solve a murder that he believes is Kabbalistic in nature. And so the film is all about the fanatical detective sort of pursuing his abstract theories and what happens to him when he does so. So yeah, it's a sort of interesting film, I think, in Cox's career. It comes in his sort of like early 90s Mexican period. The film was funded by the BBC Uh, and shot in Mexico City on like crazy sound stages, which we'll talk about, right? A lot of cool set design in this film, but it was originally a 55 minute film that aired on television. So it itself was a a sort of a short feature and he always had wanted to expand it into a fuller narrative. And it took four years and some, you know, adventurous fundraising to do so, but ultimately completed the project in 1996. And it is, yeah, I don't know. It's a film that I, I love and I feel like 
I don't have anyone to talk about it with. So uh, I'm, I was very pleased to uh, to to bring it to the table. And I'm a longtime Borges guy, you know, uh, very big uh, writer for me as a young man, you know, just sort of discovering uh, his, yeah, you know, fanciful uh, play with structure and, and what a story is, you know. So uh, that's, uh, that's what I brought. It's funny that you mentioned the challenging structure of the film because in a way Alex Cox is actually making the film more complicated than the text that it's based off of. Mm-hmm. I mean at times the the short story itself is just has those natural Borges challenges where you're lost in all these fake book titles and then you're also then trapped in the labyrinths of the mind when encountering all of these elusive fake texts that characters are obsessed over. But Alex Cox's approach to expanding it, apart from just like breathing life into scenes and adding the element of time, he does add a frame narrative. And then there's also flashbacks within those flashbacks, Mm -hmm. which is something that the story (laughs) is not treading in. So I actually think it's really admirable and cool i mean i think this movie is great and i think there's a lot of really interesting things it does but in a way it's extremely bold and very true to the spirit of borges thinking if i'm going to adapt one of his stories i might as well turn the structure of my film into a labyrinth itself both in the way it's cut and arranged and also just the spaces and the set design i mean in a a way too i would also say that pit and the pendulum in certain respects in its obsessions over the physical quality of things, of smells, texture, things that are slimy, and in itself is a very faithful adaptation of the Poe story, which itself is obsessed with those sensory details. Yeah, I think you can you can definitely tell that for both of these films, the the directors were uh, very enthusiastically approaching the material that they that they both are attempting. You know, it almost sounds like a cliche to say it, whatever, but, you know, loving uh, adaptations, you know, approaches that that do transcend the material, but still, regardless of how much they're adding or creating themselves, are trying to stay true to the spirit while also, you know, making the film that they want to make in the style that they want to make it. And, and both of these films are great representations of the directors as well, you know, and, and mm-hmm. certain things that they would play with a lot uh, throughout their career. I also want to say, I, I wanted to save this for the podcast, but, you know, uh, for for the listeners at home, you 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 may or may not be aware of this. We might have mentioned this, but, you know, the gauntlet, we've got shooters. We've got shooters. So I made sure to put in a little phone call. I used the gauntlet hotline before uh, our episode, and I called up. Mr. Alex Cox, uh, before we recorded tonight and just wanted to share with him that we were going to be talking about his film tonight and, and, you know, maybe get some, some of his words and some of his insight into, uh, the production. And, uh, you know, he didn't really want to talk a lot about the specifics of the film. He kept saying to me, oh, it's 30 years ago. What the hell, you know, (laughs) like, or whatever. (laughs) But, you know, Marsh, to your point about, you know, wishing more people had seen it. Alex was actually quite struck, he said, by the coincidence of, of of me reaching out to him at this particular moment because only last week he said he was contacting someone about getting the 35 millimeter negative to do a 4K remaster of 
death and oh, the compass. Yeah. And so he was very excited and uh, was curious if, you know, we wanted to maybe see if we could help him out with that. So maybe even, you know, some of the Gaunt listeners, if you're someone out there that has connections with certain companies that might be interested in this, uh, we've got Alex Cox and we can get you him and his enthusiastic participation in remastering Death in the Compass to bring this Let's film go. to more audiences. And he also said that if we want at any point, he will give us this film on 35 millimeter to screen at a movie theater of our choice. He said, you guys can have it. Oh my goodness. You guys can show it to people. So that could be our first live gauntlet. Yeah. So, you know, just for our listeners at home, you know, like, uh, we, we strongly encourage you check out the film that we're about to discuss. I just wanted to, to start with that. He wished us well. Uh, the only really like interesting thing that he did tell me, uh, some of the insight into like how it was made was that, I guess, I don't know if you discovered this in your research or not, but it was part of a a thing that was put together. It had something to do with Columbus. It had something to do with 1492. And so somebody, he said, was like pushing for Spanish language, you know, projects, that sort of thing. And this was created as a, as a, uh, a bigger project of Borges Shorts. And there was a team from Spain that did one. There was a team from somewhere in South America. And he was chosen as the representative for the BBC's version. So there are other projects, apparently, in a, a sort of series that this film was uh, a part of. But he did say this wasn't his first choice of a Borges short. Uh, he said that originally the BBC told him, we've got all the Borges, we've got the rights to all Borges' material. And so he said he picked uh, a different story, and then the BBC said, well, we don't actually have all the stories. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this was his second choice when he found out that all the rights didn't mean all the rights uh, after all. But Alex is very, very excited for us to to talk about his film. So I just thought it'd be a nice way for us to to start with the blessing from the man himself, the great Alex Cox. Well, thinking about this as a blessed double feature, it's funny that you mentioned that the genesis for this Borges project was something to do with Columbus in 1492, because that is when the pit and the pendulum is set. Indeed. And both of these films sort of began at at basically the same time uh, in the early 90s, almost to the year, the, the what, 500th anniversary of Columbus's, quote, discovery, right? 1492. So we've got this one in 91. <laughs> and it, it does strike me a little bit that, you know, for Charles Band, the producer, and for Stuart Gordon in making uh, Pit and the Pendulum, that, you know, they kind of rushed it to get it out in 91. And you almost figured if they just waited one more year... They would have released their film 500 years from when their film was set, you know, to the year. Savvy marketing guys like uh, the bands, you think, would have been all over that. That's what I'm saying, you know? They kind (laughs) of jumped the gun. But also savvy in the sense that, you know, they always like to try to beat out everybody else, right? So maybe they heard about... And cut the budget, you know? Make it it quicker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's something that both films also share, is, is, you know, certainly directors who are very familiar with that kind of 
creative producing required to get their projects made throughout their careers. I mean, these are two, I think, uh, incredibly talented filmmakers that sadly have had careers where they've had to really sort of struggle to, to, to make the films that they want to make. And in spite of that, are able... In a very similar way, Ryan, to your discussion of addition, I think these are two directors who are also very capable at sort of making a lot out of uh, very little in terms of their budgets, you know? And and certainly The Bit and the Pendulum is a great example of this, uh, which seems to be a project that was totally just sort of kind of uh, came to be simply because Charles Band owned a castle that's right in Italy. yeah so. well yeah from what i understand there was a, a peter o'toole attached version of the film uh, had a real budget and ultimately there were there were issues and o'toole had to back out of the film and then it turned into a let's go to the band castle production mm-hmm. right so yeah. it definitely yeah went from yeah you know whatever big budget dreams they had to the, the hard truths yeah. of full moon entertainment. Let's shoot at my house. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Which happened to be a castle in Italy. But yeah, Indy, I got to roast you on the pod again because, you know, just when I thought we were out of Italy, Pin the Pendulum was shot in Italy. Oh, so man. it's like we're, we're never going to leave. You yeah. Know? I, feel, I feel bad, you know. I've never described myself as like an Italophile or whatever you would call it. And, and man, you know, like... I went through my Russian phase on the podcast for a while, my my like my Kambach era, and and now we've moved into my Italian my Italian period. So, how are we gonna get out of this? We'll, we'll figure out a way. Oh fuck! Didn't even think. But about yeah, that. you know, talking about the harsh realities of a full moon production. Um, you know, I will I, I will say I did like this film and I had a lot of fun, but those harsh realities I think are are very present in the first 45 minutes or so of, oh, of yeah. this film. The baker. I, I, yeah, I, I was a little tense. Uh, I, I felt like the man strapped to the table with the pendulum on its way down, thinking about the remainder of the film, because, yeah, it's it's pretty rough going at first. I think that Stewart is is having fun in trying to, you know, mix in his, like, comedic sensibility into it, but I think the broad strokes and sort of very lowbrow gags that color the first half, coupled with just some, that like, Antonio, just, like, just some really dreadful performing from (laughs) some of the main figures, you know, outside of, like, Lance Henriksen and, you know, Jeffrey Combs and the other people in, like, the... The Stuart Gordon stock company guys. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) Those guys are good. But um, it it is, it's a bumpy road. Um, There is a turning point in the film where everything sort of kicks into gear and then it's locked and loaded and it's nonstop mayhem from that point on. And we'll get to that. And I was like, okay, we are in Stuart Gordon territory. Like, I feel at home. But yeah, it's... It's full moon for yeah. shooting telephoto on all those Italian extras to make it seem like there's a huge crowd, you know, but they're <laughs> yeah. just like repeating the same people, you know? Oh, yeah. It's awesome. Oh, man. oh yeah. Yeah. No. And I think it was also in my mind simply because uh, I feel in the last two weeks we've like we've invoked the name of Charles Band yes, several times. So it only felt appropriate to to pull in one of his, you know, attempts at a, a sort of prestige picture or whatever. Yeah. yeah. The, yeah. Pit and the pendulum is. And it's it, it's like a prestige picture, I think, for Gordon, too. I mean, I think it, it is probably underappreciated because he 
is slightly more restrained than he normally is. And I think that's a self-conscious choice because he's going like, well, now we're making a historical film too, you know? So I don't want to go full Lovecraft on them. So like, yeah, there is a little bit of restraint on his part. Obviously there's shocks and gore and mayhem and and much Mm -hmm. more, uh, but certainly less explicit uh, gore-wise than than his other films. Yes. Yeah, and when I often think of him, I think of his visual style being almost candy-colored, you know, lots of purples and greens, like Nickelodeon slime green mixed Mm -hmm. with everything else. Um, and the visual style of this film is borderline Clint Eastwood territory. I mean, it is just like pure pitch black for brown for so oh, much yeah. of it. Yeah, brown. <laughs> um, but yeah, those interiors in the castle. I mean, you there's not a ton you can see, and it's kind of neat. You know, I, I mean, I think it actually invokes a certain amount of dread, and it's it feels calculated. It doesn't feel like it's underlit or anything. But he treads in much darker territory yeah. with the visual style of this film as he does with his more readily apparent kind of comic horror films. Yes. And you're right uh, about the gore specifically. That was like one thing that struck me because there are, not to get a, a, ahead of ourselves, uh, but there are like a few moments where like I was kind of aghast at at like when they cut at certain moments where I'm like, they just cut away from the money shot. Like they cut away from the guy getting sliced in half or whatever, you know, like they, they shied away. And I, I was sort of puzzled and tried to like get some more input into like why some of those choices were made. Were they trying to go for a more mainstream release? And, and so they felt at times like, Hey, we got to tone down the gore a little bit. You know, we got Oliver Reed in the movie or whatever, (laughs) you know, like (laughs) we got, we got to get this in some theaters, you know, but, but I couldn't really discover that. It did just, like yeah make me wonder was he was he to an extent trying to play this material a little bit more straight um i think you see and feel a big difference from performer to performer as well uh and charles band did have a little insight into that i read uh in his uh, an excerpt from his book his his memoir where he was saying that like you know all these actors everyone had a different way of approaching and apparently one of the biggest issues was was lance henriksen being a method guy <laughs> and so <laughs> Uh, they all, from what I gathered in the memoir, like he had everyone like just living in the castle because he had all the rooms. So everybody was there. And so at all hours they had to deal with like Lance Henriksen as Torquemada, as Torquemada, like oh my God. in that environment. I and, read that he, yeah, he only drank water yeah. and like, because in, in, in real life, Torquemada was like an ascetic or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so he like ate and drank nothing, you know, and Lance was, yeah, was doing that. Yeah. It sounded like there was a lot of partying going on and, and Lance Henriksen was just kind of haunting the, <laughs> the vibe a lot as Turkamata, you know, it also sounded to me from the memoir that, you know, as, as I mentioned, Oliver Reed is, is prominently billed in the film, but is really only in about like what, two minutes of the oh, movie. Yeah. He has if a very, that, yeah. a very good scene, a very memorable scene. Uh, but but it sounded to me like Oliver Reed just hung out with them for the entire production. Uh, it, that's what it, it it sounded like that he was just getting drunk, like hanging out in the castle all the time. More wine, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah for, he's the kind of guy that's minutes. down to hang. I mean, it's cool though. Like it invokes the devils, you know, when he shows up, and I and I think that's also what in yeah in Gordon's mind he's like doing his devils. Yes, you know? yeah. yes, definitely. I will say, mm-hmm. coupled with uh, like the way Oliver. Reed's face was like kind of condensed with his goofy 
red outfit and then his attempt at an Italian accent, I couldn't help but think that I was like, this is Oliver Reed as Javier Bardem. Like it didn't really register <laughs> as like an Italian accent. It sounded much more confused than yeah. that. Again, it's it's probably because he was drunk the whole time. Yes. And one funny detail from Charles Band's memoir about that specifically and Oliver Reed's, you know, uh, whether you want to call it like a uh, her- heroic ability to to ingest alcohol or or sad and and, and pathetic but uh, he said that you know they would have these dinners and uh, Oliver Reed would just hold court he said at, at the, the dinner table for hours you know telling stories and just drinking ungodly amounts of booze and he said you know he never got up from the table and he said that you know he'd talk to his wife like how can he do this like that is inhuman and he said in his memoir that the next day they discovered somebody had gone under the table and apparently oliver reed would just be pissing into bottles at the dinner table oh, yeah. <laughs> the whole time holy shit he just never left the table and they thought like man boy that guy's got a bladder and it's like no he was just like filling up all these beer bottles under the table like the whole time that's very medieval behavior though i think it fits in with the 1492 setting i like the oh, idea yeah. of the craft services and like the the crew lunches being held at these like long you know medieval castle tables big banquets and i i think you you know you you get what you're going to get from from productions like this and it's very clear that some people are having a lot of fun and some people uh might not be having as much fun as others and uh, i think again right just a long-winded way of saying i i think that's that's very much like where you can find that kind of like uneven feeling you know where where some some performers don't even really perhaps get the joke and others nail whatever joke that they're they're expected to deliver you know it feels like half of the cast thinks it's a tv movie and the other half are treating it like a real Stuart Gordon production. Well, there's a third there's a third layer, right? Because it's like <laughs> well, Lance Henriksen is in a league of his own in this movie. He is in a different movie than everyone else. Oh, and yeah. I think that's actually yes. an interesting strategy because then you have his minions, right? All the Inquisition guys, and they're all old Gordon guys. So like their whole shtick, you know, organic theater style, like yucking it up like they, you know, they used to in the 60s in Chicago on stage, you know? And that's, of course, like a deliberate sort of point of Gordon in this movie is to make a mockery of the Inquisition. And he does it with Jeffrey Combs and these other guys, you know, uh, Mark Margolis, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. and these guys are just, they're yucking it up the whole time. And then, oh, yeah. yeah, there's like, you know, the Baker and, <laughs> yeah. and, and Maria, you know, and these are like, they tonally just, yeah, they like throw it all off because I love what's going on with the castle freaks, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Obviously. I mean, the film does have a strong opening scene where they are sentencing a man to, to 20 lashes, even though he's been dead for, <laughs> for many, many years, and they cart out the the corpse, you know, just the dusty bones of a man, and they, they whip him in front of his family. Um, and in a way, the the people committing the I was thinking uh, right away it it actually evokes the opening of the Pit and the Pendulum short story mm-hmm. in the way that Poe describes the you know everyone in black robes with very white faces and thin lips those passing judgment in the opening scene of the film very much resemble them and like that mood is there but then there's the Stuart Gordon comedy 
of having a man whip uh, just a bunch of bones. <laughs> yeah. And then they bring out the giant mortar and pestle and grind the bones <laughs> into a nice little powder. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Very I mean, nice. It's, it's, Very nice. It's a great opening, I think, you know, because it, it, it for Gordon is kind of, yes, it's it's establishing like what, for him, the, the main idea that he wants to explore in the story. You know, it's it's not just the, the tension of, of, you know, being tortured and, and, you know, will this guy be cut in half or won't he? It's, as you were pointing out, Marsh, it's sort of like, yeah, organized religion is is absurd. And here you can see the depths of how absurd it can get where, you know, a, a sentence is being passed on a dead man because, of course, you know, the body may die, but but there's still a soul to be sentenced or humiliated or embarrassed uh, in, in front of his family. And yeah, the, the castle freaks, as you put it, the, the minions <laughs> of, of Torquemada are all playing their roles like put upon bureaucrats. And that's really coming across very well from them, especially, you know, the great Jeffrey Combs. I mean, like he really uh, is, is, you know, one of like the shining stars of the film because yeah, he's playing his, his whatever, like accountant or something like that in a, in a very like, yeah, just intelligent way. And I think another smart choice in that uh, regard is like that the Gordon decided like we're not going to do accents for the most part or at Except least Oliver a, Reed yeah at least allowed <laughs> you know yeah I mean how can you tell Oliver Reed not to do an accent yeah, right? he just let him do whatever he wants yeah. I think he just thought he was in Italy so he would do an Italian accent yeah you know? yeah I guess yeah yeah you know all that uh, Shakespearean training or whatever he probably yeah. had at a certain point but but yeah you know they 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 not only like are are not doing accents but a lot of their speech patterns are very modern as well. You know, they're not they're not trying to do a sort of stuffy period piece in their mannerisms. And so, yes, that that sort of banality of evil is is central, like right from the get go. That this is about this this horrifying thing taken to such ridiculous levels that that you can perhaps find black comedy in it. You know, in its critique of of the legal system or religion or whatever you want to call it, you know? Mm -hmm. I also quite liked the title sequence of the film. I mean, maybe this is just because I've been spending all my days staying up way too late playing Elden Ring, but I thought that the artwork of, like, all the skeletons climbing out of coffins, uh, like the old-style, like, religious artwork, coupled with, you know, the the orchestral music, it's it's nice. It ha it's very much feels like it's invoking the spirit of the horrors of Poe or even... Even Lovecraft, which is in dr drastic opposition to uh, one of the torture chambers later, which has like skeleton graffiti on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it's funny because like that moment felt like it was evocative and you know time appropriate, and then it felt really anachronistic later when the baker and his wife are like selling bread on the street and then a couple of little children thieves steal their a few just loaves of bread and run off and the music that swells like the little jingle that plays when he chases after these boys just it sounds like Danny Elfman or like 90s uh, oh, yeah. Jerry Goldsmith you know it's just like light television you know a little sidebar scene well you can thank or blame the bands for that because uh you know, if you're if you're getting Charles Band, you're getting Richard Band along for the ride, who would compose almost all the great uh, Full Moon and Empire features, right? And sometimes very well, and and other times, you know, 
yeah, not so much. Uh, yeah. But, but yeah, you know, and, and I would say too, it, th- that whole opening sort of sequence there with the baker and, and, you know, taking his bread to the auto da fe, you know, because that's a, a big place to sell your bread, you know, the public torture uh, and the public executions that the Inquisition are, are uh, staging for the, for the public, you know, that, boy, you know, this is a big day for us. We'll sell a lot of bread at the auto da fe, you know, yeah. uh, that <laughs> I, I also was thinking of like Richard Lester and I was thinking of, uh, you know, a, a certain aspect of like um, some of Richard Lester's films, particularly uh, his his Musketeers films, one of the things I've always appreciated about his his uh, you know sort of like tapestry that he could build is is a lot of the the sort of like side chatter that you hear having jokes within it you know sort of like throwaway lines from from extras and that sort of thing and there's uh, right off the bat there's this great um, you know character this extra who's selling sausages I don't know if you, oh, you yeah. noticed I'm the a fresh yeah, this is a guy selling sausages <laughs> and like, yeah, it's, it's pretty goofy and in a very like kind of cartoonish Lester way, it, it then builds to him saying, it's just like, you barely will notice it, you know, but, but there's a lot of those little kind of touches in like the crowd work that again, like speak to, I think, uh, Stuart Gordon's influences and again, the ways that he would try to inject humor wherever he could find it as gallows and as dark and, and, uh, you know, inappropriate as it might seem, but yeah, I guess it's a funny little link between both films. The the villainous figures, um, whether they're like the administrators in Death in the Compass, or then just like yeah, the Inquisition here are rather anti-Semitic at times. There's that's like sprinkled throughout uh, both. Oh yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I think it's a big uh, connection between the two. You know that I mean, again, knowing what. I would assume anyone who knows Alex Cox would know about him is, is the man's very critical of systems of power, very critical of, of authority figures, but in, in sort of being able to build in their backgrounds, both Gordon and Cox, uh, a sort of critique of bureaucracy, a critique of authority figures, law enforcement, religious figures, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, both films explicitly take place in police states where, you know, state-sanctioned violence, sexual and otherwise, is the order of the day, you know? There's a bit Mm -hmm. of, yeah, sort of like anti-fundamentalist, anti-fascist elements to both of these films in... Uh, even then, in the late 80s, early 90s, I was actually thinking of, like, you know, when John Carpenter did that with Escape from L.A., which is all about, like, the fundamentalists are coming, you know? And I'm sitting here watching this again and going, like, Gordon's doing the same thing here, you know? He's looking at the landscape of, yeah, the late 80s, early 90s and going, folks, this is bad, Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. But I guess, you know, and that's especially true and interesting when thinking about the auto de fe itself and how our, you know, the baker and his wife don't want to witness the execution. You know, they try to leave, but they're, they're barred from leaving. They're forced to sit and watch it. And I actually thought that that was was kind of biting. This is a film that has state-sanctioned torture, but it's also one in which the populace is, you know, demanded to witness it so they can either relish in it or understand it or see its value. And that makes me think of thinking about when the film came out too um, and where America would end up 
10 years later, it's pretty perceptive for a film like this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and in The Ultimate Troll as well, Gordon uh, burns his wife alive at the <laughs> auto de fe. That's the woman who's been accused uh, of being a witch, uh, is played by Carolyn Purdy Gordon, who always has uh, cameos and performances in his films, a theater actor and movie actor herself. And so, of course, yeah, they just... They burn her at the stake in mm-hmm. basically the op- the second scene of the movie. <laughs> yes, yeah. It's nice. <laughs> what a guy, what a guy. Real life guy. Yeah. Absolutely. But it, it does, like, again, also, like, establish, like, a key element here, which is, like, the insane hypocrisy, you know, the illogical approach to the entire system of the Inquisition that's been built, you know? There's a lot of moments where characters are, you know, the the yeah the the castle freaks I like calling them that especially considering the you know the Gordon follow up that was also right. shot at the the, uh, the the band castle <laughs> castle freak but uh, <laughs> there's a lot of moments where you know we we get glimpses into whatever thinking is behind all this stuff and again it's 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 meant to be over the top in how you don't have to think about it too hard for it to just all fall apart. It doesn't make any sense. You know, there's, there's this discussion of, of how important it is to only get confessions from people while they're being tortured. You know, I think right. it's, it's uh, maybe Jeffrey Combs character oh, yeah. who says, right? We don't have to go through this. I'm perfectly willing to tell you whatever you want to hear. Confessions are only accepted under torture. Otherwise you might confess just to avoid torture and it wouldn't be a true confession. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, like build, it's good. Build yeah. upon that too. Yeah, where we would wind up, not even, yeah. you know, ten years later. Uh, and, and this film is only a crude meaning over time. In in several of the things it's doing with its political commentary, for sure. Yeah, I also think it's really perceptive in how it shows the you know perverse appeal that these fascist leaders are finding in their torture, right? And like the way they fetishize it apart from even just like you know the demeaning of human bodies but even thinking about lance henriksen having a pendulum itself on his desk like a smaller version of the pendulum that he can like sit and watch yeah uh, is a nice touch just something that he sort of froths at the mouth thinking about all these people getting so jazzed about their torture oh yeah and i mean he's also pushing it to the level of yeah just like psychosexual obsession and and body horror fetish territory very quickly i mean lance henriksen's i guess number one torturer is as marsh mentioned played by mark margolis mendoza is his name he's the one that's that's complimented for his his uh, whipping of the corpse in the beginning but uh, mark margolis plays a man who was at a certain point tortured by the inquisition and and torquemada and uh you know his character is 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 yeah playing it you know he's very in sync with lance henriksen that they're they're both on that kind of yeah weird kind of sadomasochistic uh attraction to one another, um, being that Mendoza uh, is a guy who was was actually crucified at a certain point, but he himself is this kind of weird guy that that might also be kind of turned on by it. I mean, there's that strange moment where Lance Henriksen like has him hold up his crucified hands and and he still has like holes in his hands. 
you know, Torquemada just like sticks his finger in one of the like the the crucifixion holes and like twists yeah, it around. Yeah, he fingers his crucifixion wound. It's so yucky. Yeah, it's like so perverse. Predicting Cronenberg's um, crash. Right, and the guy's like, yeah. you know, and Mendoza's like eyes roll back in his head. Like there's a weird sort of almost pleasure that he gets out of it. Like he's a very weird, twisted, conflicted character. But yeah, you know that that's really like what the bulk of the film then is. It's exploring Torquemada's you know, twisted psyche. We actually spend a lot more time with with Torquemada than we do, thankfully, uh, with the baker, <laughs> yeah, who, who spends most of the film, like, locked up, you know? Yeah. He decides he's gonna just barge into the castle to to get his wife, you know, to to rescue his wife, who's been accused of witchcraft, and... His own little commando raid. Yeah, his own <laughs> little commando <laughs> raid that, that, at least initially, doesn't quite go so well, and, and, and uh, yeah, he's, he's locked up, but... But then it's it's Torquemada, you know, dealing with his strange attraction to Maria and and what this means uh, to him and and for him. We should also just bring up the fact of what Lance Henriksen looks like in this movie. I feel like we haven't addressed his, <laughs> his haircut. Go ahead. Because I'm also, you know, thinking about him as a method performer and you mentioning that he wasn't attending any of the parties. I like the idea that uh, when he was drinking his water and maybe eating like a few pieces of like day old bread, that he was also just like delicately grooming the haircut that he dons in the film, <laughs> which is like a line of hair that wraps or it's like primarily a shaved head. And then there's like a line of hair that circles around his head um, horizontally and then there is a little tuft <laughs> of hair that almost looks like it's there on accident you kind of want to just like rub it off his face you want to just yeah. like, blow it off you know um, and that's like on the center of his forehead um, yeah is a bizarre haircut it's it's brilliant like uh, costume and makeup design for him. Uh, yeah, as soon as he takes the hood off and you you get a glimpse of that, it is, uh, yeah, it, it, it rocks. And I mean, to <laughs> me, you know, this film is many things, but the best thing that it is is a study of Lance Henriksen's face. This movie is probably like one-fifth deranged close-ups of Lance Henriksen's face. And with the bald head and with, you know, the setting, and there's a lot of fire going on all the time. Yeah. Uh, but there is just like all these grotesque shots of him from all kinds of angles. And at a certain point, I was like, this is a documentary about his face, you know? I mean, dude, it, it honestly, there were times where it, it, it invoked like drier for me, like as yeah. a study of like the close up and how much you can get out of a close up. And he gives a lot of looks. I mean, he goes at times from like, you know, cackling with, with glee to, to being like completely twisted and torn up on a spiritual level inside. And he is, he is wrenching every last drop out of that like gaunt, almost skeletal face of his and those eyes which are constantly popping and and piercing my my very soul i feel at times he has a great face for it i remember when i got to meet him at the like the one horror convention i ever went to and i remember seeing him and he had the the biggest bow leg gap 
I've ever seen on a man in person. It looked like it probably shaved four inches off of his height, how far apart his knees were uh, when he was standing tall. I didn't get him to sign my copy of Survival Quest because I think a Lance Henriksen signature was like $100. Wow. (laughs) Big players. Yeah. Yeah. That was me. And that was like, I was like shuffling through and getting all my Phantasm signatures and those were like 10 bucks, you know? So (laughs) it was like pretty shocking to just to feel that difference um he was a very wonderful and nice man though the other uh like fun familiar face that we get in this film um oh, yeah. is a woman whose name i didn't write down oh my god dude it's francis bay mm-hmm. Fran- right right uh, the grandmother from happy gilmore she's in david lynch stuff she's the best and so she plays uh, a convicted witch in this film, and she gives a very spirited and goofy performance. Here's the thing that Stuart Gordon added to the world of the pit and the pendulum, and that's sort of a, there's sort of a twist here in this world of this film, which is that we find out through Esmeralda, the Francis Bay character who Maria meets in prison when she's locked up, that witchcraft is kind of real and it is a positive thing and Esmeralda teaches Maria uh, what witchcraft is really all about which is like being a healer and being at one with nature and as she explains to Maria in jail uh, Maria says oh my god you're a witch and Esmeralda says I don't ride a broomstick through the air or kiss the devil's cock (laughs) (laughs) yeah But basically, yeah, she's like a midwife, and that's why she's been accused of being a witch, because she's a midwife, right? So that's sort of like the function of witchcraft here is not only are like all their accusations false, but if they are true, the witchcraft is like a positive healing force, right? So they're just locking up, yeah, midwives, right, who are doing women's business, you know? Yeah. She makes no qualms about it, you know? She flat out says, yeah, I'm a... I'm a witch. I mean, she tells Maria yeah. that she's a witch. It just doesn't mean what we usually think it means. Yeah, you know? it's a good thing. And she certainly suffers a series of indignities, as we like to say, um, uh, throughout the film. You know, at one point she is tortured quite ruthlessly. They've got a funnel and they're pouring, uh, is it just water yeah. down her throat? Yeah, they're yeah, like, they're, they're water. Pouring, yeah. I mean, water. I don't know, maybe it was like wine or, I, you know, I don't know. But yeah, they're, they're, they're pouring water down her throat and Jeffrey Combs is demanding that she confesses but she admits, I confess to everything, and he then follows up with, well, you have to be more specific. And naturally, she's strung nearly upside down. She's on her back with her head over the edge of the table, water flooding her lungs. Uh, she can't remember. and <laughs> she, she loses track, and it nearly kills her. But so she does later in uh, what I would consider the real turning point of the film, when, when it ramps back up to 11 um, and fulfills the promises of a Stuart Gordon production is when she is sent to be burnt at the stake. And she, <laughs> this is a truly yes. inspired scene. Oh, yes. Something I like had never considered before. So as she's being shuffled out in the cart to be loaded up and burned on the stake, she notices there's a barrel of gunpowder within arm's reach. So her, <laughs> she decides, she gets a very clever move, she starts just chowing down wolfing it down gunpowder by the fistful and just swallowing as much as she can <laughs> yeah, uh, <dude. laughs> and i you know you got i wonder if this could I, like how much i wonder how much gunpowder you would have to eat for what follows to actually happen um <laughs> but i it, it was certainly like the equivalent of just like fireworks going off it was beautiful it's when she's eventually strung up there and she 
bursts. She completely explodes. Look into there's a there's a few other like curses and hexes she she put places on everyone, but just the image of her stuffed with gunpowder and then blowing up with her bones goring different members of the crowd. Yeah. Her bones become shrapnel. Just brilliant. <laughs> Dude, yeah. Absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. I mean that fucking rocks, you know? Like that, <laughs> Yeah, that's unbelievable. Yeah, that that those are the moments that yeah, in a film by like Stuart Gordon, you 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 really would come to expect that level of yeah. of, you know, body horror, you know, the body as suddenly yeah, a, 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 an explosive weapon also. Yeah. But yeah. I finally like sat back up again. I feel like throughout the film I was like slouching more and more as it was like in full full moon territory. Uh, but when she blows up with her with all her gunpowder, with her gunpowder belly, I was I was a happy oh. customer once again. And that's right after uh, we you know we should say, of course, that, yeah, you know, much of the movie is, as Andy pointed out, sort of diving into Torquemada and his tortured soul. And he is, you know, he's fallen in love with Maria, which is a huge problem. You know, she may be the baker's wife, but she's also very religious and thinks what he's doing is very bad, yes. you know? Accuses uh, so, him of, of blasphemy himself. Exactly. And this, this rattles him because... Uh, uh, despite you know he's he's got sexual problems, uh, but he loves her in a way that you know moves him beyond you know anything normal, right? And so he's sort of like hanging out with her, and uh, it gets it gets a little chippy, and he cuts her tongue off. Oh yeah, with a with a pair of uh, you know fourteen ninety two scissors that don't look very sharp at all. Yeah. Yeah, not pleasant. So that's like the one-two punch, right, Ryan, that you're talking about that then becomes, you know, the sort of Stuart Gordon fest because we've got one character who's lost her tongue and is presumed dead and buried in a tomb. The other eats a shitload of gunpowder while laughing at everyone and then exploding and goring them. (laughs) And then Torquemada strings up Antonio the baker to the pit in the pendulum, which has been teased, you know, Mm -hmm. throughout the movie as this you know new thing i'm working on (laughs) yeah 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 we finally get there we finally get to edgar Allan poe's contribution to this whole (laughs) twisted tale well along with uh, we should say uh oliver reed shows up for a scene does an Italian accent and then gets uh, buried sealed up, behind, sealed up in a brick wall. <laughs> so there's a f- another Poe short story stuffed into one Oliver Reed scene yeah. in this film. Oh yeah, yeah, and it is like a very good moment, you know, when Oliver Reed shows up because he's hamming it up. Of course, I'm sure you can imagine, as we sort of alluded to earlier, very much uh, intoxicated. I'm he gives sure. them all the requisitioned booze from the Inquisition. Yeah, they know how to they know how to get him. They ply him with booze, and and yeah, he, his character was delivered, you know, from the Pope, uh, and and specifically, you know, to say, hey, Torquemada. Uh, y'all need to like chill out. The auto de fe has got to stop. You can't be doing this shit. And there's like an amusing moment again with like the minions where they're kind of like, oh shit, the Pope's, the guy, the Pope's guy's coming. He's a cardinal. Like what the hell? And the guy being like, ah, who gives a shit? And I think Jeffrey Combs goes like, the Pope is the Pope. Like what, what are we supposed to do? But, but he shows up and Torquemada demonstrates, yes, as you pointed out, Marsh, that, that uh, he is above the law on this earth. He answers only to the God that he feels is speaking to him. Surely Rome understands that 
Public execution is discouraged sin. <laughs> the good Lord, you know, Padre, he wants us to, to love our neighbor. No, no, roast him. No, roast him. Your eminence, what greater love than to manifest God's justice. The Pope also want the Inquisition to stop the use of torture and declare an amnesty on all heretics and witches. Rome is behind the times. His holiness is old and lost his zeal. He is the Pope! And I am the Inquisition. His holiness also demand, order you, to return to Rome with me for an audience. I receive no such demand. And yes, yeah, seals a ballerina the wall after two minutes. <laughs> it is a very comical <laughs> image of seeing, you know, Mr. Reed uh, just disappe- disappearing behind the, <laughs> behind the wall, you know? Yeah. You know, and it's funny, too, without treading into spoiler territory for a film not in discussion, there's something very similar that happens when a figure from the church arrives to talk with Benedetta in the new Paul Verhoeven movie, and while we were watching, Molly had pointed out, you know, if Torquemetta had paired up with Benedetta, they might have been able to do some really good things for the uh-huh. church. Like, crossover? Yeah, match made in heaven, those two. You never know. Take it easy. <laughs> <laughs> but eventually, yes, Antonio is is strapped to the the board, and the the we get the scene with get the pendulum swinging above him, and and that is. For the most part, I mean, like, it is a very faithful uh, rendition of, like, the events that that unfold in, in Poe's story. The way that he, uh, you know, sort of wriggles out of it, figures out how to how to escape from the the the, the machine is 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 taken directly from the the short story. So we Yeah, we get that. except with a pretty unique twist that I actually found really enhanced the scene and was a very clever addition from Stuart Gordon. In in the short story when the unnamed figure is strapped down and he notices all of the rats that are sort of gnawing at him and then potentially they're eating his like leftover nasty meat that he has sitting next to him he has the idea of then taking that meat and rubbing it all over the ropes so that the rats will like think it's it's meat and then they'll chew off the ropes and he gets to break free but in this version he has a rat climbs onto his belly, is sliced in half by the pendulum, and then he takes the back half of that rat <laughs> and squeezes its guts all over his already chewed apart hand uh, to then inspire the rats to eat their brethren and lick up the blood and bite the rope to set him free. Yeah. And that was disgusting. Yes, another nice Gordon flourish there, the... The ringing out of the rat's guts, its innards. Oh. <laughs> yeah. It looks incredible. It is, a, it is a disgusting practical effect. So I'm sure you can imagine, uh, you know, without diving too heavily into, into you know, what transpires, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure you can imagine there's a, a bit of come up and stew for, for Torquemada and uh, 
the baker uh, delivers it quite well in that moment. He does. I mean, I guess even just to keep going, like he turns it into a whole action set piece. He really, he adds all sorts of crazy color and incident into the pendulum. I mean, the one thing when you read The Pit and the Pendulum is you wish someone did get cut in half. Mm -hmm. And it's nice because in this, you have someone cut in half down the middle vertically yeah he's <laughs> like standing yeah, up there's like a whole fight scene in the in the room yes yeah once he wriggles out then of course there's you know the 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 captain of the guards and everyone you know torquemada's men try to come in and 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 stop him but again that's one of those moments where you know the guy that gets cut in half like they cut away right when the thing kind of sliced through him and and i was like ah you know i wanted to see like the guy I know. you know like fall apart split apart you know like in ghost ship is that the movie where that happens to the guy final he destination gets cut down the middle. two or three? yeah pretty much any final destination oh, movie somebody glass. gets you yeah. know cut in half yeah the whole setup of this device like the pendulum is again you know you, you sort of think about it, adaptation and just ideas and and where people go and how something so small can be so influential and such creative inspiration for so many people to come because the pendulum, as it stands in Poe's story, is sort of like this this thing that you will then see pop up in so many other movies. The idea of a character mm-hmm. uh, that you know is basically facing a, a, a ticking clock to escape some sort of apparatus that was built to deliver a very you know aesthetically dramatic form of of destruction of the body and it 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 definitely conjured for me the many times you've seen that happen in a great james bond film not to you know many times yeah you know you think i was i was immediately thinking of like uh goldfinger where he's on the table you know and uh you know, he's got oh, yeah. the laser that's going to cut him in half. It's slowly burning its way up through right. the table. I mean, that's that's the pit and the pendulum. That's 100%. That's actually fascinating. That's true. In a way, like every Bond villain's villainous scheme has its seeds in the pit and the pendulum. And then the most extreme version of that naturally is Austin Powers when Seth Green is, you know, they've got the sharks with the lasers on his head and Seth Green says, why don't you just shoot them? <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is, yeah, very, very much so. And this, not that they, I mean, they, they show that the guns in 1492 were uh, very ineffective, and after they get one shot off, you know, the guy's like, take out your swords. Yeah, like, he's rushing that's back That's one of my it. favorite gags in the whole yeah. movie, you know? <laughs> this whole firing squad, squad comes out, and they're they're trying to shoot the baker, and they shoot, you know, the, the pendulum, because it's just, like, swinging in front of them, and then it's like, oh, man, they have, like, muskets. Yeah. They have to, like, reload. They're like, Damn, they're like, well, <laughs> what to do, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, captain of the guard. This, but this feels like the like the peak of a Bond alert. It really does. I didn't even think about the connection between Edgar Allan Poe and the James Bond universe. But I think the aesthetic death uh, can be at least one of the sources yeah. can be traced back to yeah. to this story. In Goldfinger, when he's on the table, you know, and he sees the laser going up, he says, "What does he say? Like, you expect me to talk?" And then Goldfinger just simply says, no, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. You know, it isn't about talking. It's about... I could hear Torque Mata saying the same yeah, thing. Yeah, it's about, here's going to be a really horrible way that you're going to go out. And it's going to be very amusing to me, you know. And that's a, and that's a, uh, a callback to uh, Goethe Freud. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. Go listen to the fourth installment, one of our early episodes. Oh, yeah, you know. 
nice callback. You got to love a good gauntlet callback. But but yeah, you know, like this, I think it 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 really like rewatching this and specifically with this like you know this focus Ryan that you gave us of like thinking about the short stories like it it made me think about Stuart Gordon and it made me think about a lot of his choices for adaptation and why I think he would go to people like Poe and people like Lovecraft in the sense that you know so much that can be drawn from their stories is is not necessarily like the story itself but but an element within that story and that that Mm -hmm. it's like the lack of material is the springboard to stories right it's the fact that it isn't like this thing that we really have to like specifically like how do we got to deal with this and this character and that plot point and all this stuff like you said with a novel where you you get caught up in subtraction that that author's especially for someone like Stuart Gordon, like Poe and, and H.B. Lovecraft, allow them so much to to design and, and to be creative with, you know? Absolutely. I, I feel like one of the things that I walked away from with Pit and the Pendulum that surprised me was in reading the short story and then watching the film, the, the last thing I expected from this film and from Stuart Gordon, I would even say, was that for this film to have biting political commentary, for him to turn a full moon production into something somewhat political. And that's something that I don't think the short story is really treading in, maybe very loosely, like ideas of intolerance with the Spanish Inquisition or just like the fear of, you know, the state coming after you. But it's very loose in that sense. And I actually think that that's something these films have in common. Because Borges, his short stories aren't typically overtly political. And if they are, it's perplexing. His politics are a bit muddy. It's never quite clear. Um, he may have been a reactionary. It's, you know, with Borges, he's in his own universe. Oh, yeah. It's sort of hard to tell with him. And Cox's approach is to radically politicize the work. <laughs> and it's amazing that he's able to do that while still making it feel extremely faithful to the text. And that was just something I walked away from being incredibly impressed by. There are, there are stray mentions in the short story to the state of the city, to the neighborhoods they're going to, like, oh, these suburbs are destitute or falling apart. You know, Borges uses a lot of language trying to sort of get us a brief sense of the of the settings, but it's really, you know, his focus is on the idea of crafting a mystery, crafting meaning out of things you're perceiving and returning to texts and doing all of that with it. But Cox, he's, his visions of these environments are politically charged and politics are directly addressed at many points throughout the film in terms of elections and propaganda posters and the way that the world is being run. Uh, he did say on the phone today when I asked him, you know, like, well, wh- why did you pick this one? You know, like it, you mentioned it wasn't your first choice. So then like you clearly had others to choose from and this wasn't, you know, this wasn't your immediate choice so then why this one and he was like well it's very nice it has a good detective story in it you know and and i i think that makes perfect sense for him to to your Mm -hmm. point because you know alex cox is a dude that loves genre cinema he loves uh you know westerns and detective films and you know he loves uh, noir and and he loves B movies. He loves all that stuff, and the guys made a, an entire career out of that. Of saying like, I'm gonna make a 
uh, you know, I'm going to make a Western, but it's going to be about Nicaragua or whatever. You know, I'm going to make, you know, this this buddy comedy, but it's going to be about how rotten the world is. It's going to be about capitalism, you know, destroying our lives and, and, and stuff like that. So so I think that was specifically it for him was kind of going like, I'm going to jump in and and it has a tight story in it like the plots there you know and for him then mm-hmm. it's it's yeah i'm going to i'm going to build the world around it because so much of what i really appreciate about his films and and this one is is no different is just again in in a way that i guess is kind of similar to how we were discussing the pit and the pendulum it's like in these scenes it's all the stuff in the background it's all the stuff happening around the characters it's all the stuff happening around the investigation that really give you a sense of of yeah his his true critique uh his true political sensibility i guess that that he's trying to 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 wrap around this this sort of tightly plotted approach to a detective story, you know? And that's really where the Miguel Sandoval character, Trevor Rannis, comes in. He's kind of like this extra textual layer that comments on the action, allows, you know, a, a really great actor to just, like, do whatever, uh, which we can talk about, certainly. Uh, but, yeah, he, he forms this kind of meta-commentary. And it's, of course comic because it's from the perspective of this like grizzled cop you know and one who in particular is yeah corrupt and uh against everything that lunro the the fancy lad detective is uh, all about and it's really like <laughs> his character that brings that in no criminal is safe tonight that's all i have to say What an ill-advised remark. Some criminals are always safe. There aren't enough cells for one thing. If that's the kind of bold, sweeping generalization my colleague was so prone to make. Never a thought for the consequences. But also, again, yeah, the backgrounds, the details, the special effects, the mat work. Because really, there is a lot of emphasis placed on, like, the dystopia hellhole. And a lot of that, actually all of it, is created through, like, artificial means. This film is highly, highly stylized. It is basically, to like, I'm not a big comic book guy, but this looks like what, in my mind, like, cool comic books are. Like, because it looks awesome, and it's dense, and it's like, shit's always exploding or on fire in the background. It kind of has, like a cyberpunk feel, even though it's not futuristic. Uh, Everyone's wearing, like, Dick Tracy-like costumes, like, bold... uh, Primary colors. Primary colors, like Peter Boyle wears a bright blue suit. Sandoval wears a bright yellow suit. uh, And everything is just... Red Scarlack. God, yeah, Red Scarlack, which we'll get into in a second here. But, yeah, everything is expressive everything is excessive and in sort of the spirit of Borges the camera is roving and prowling and boundless and getting lost in these sets and these spaces and these cities in like long unbroken steady cam shots yeah there are some like virtuoso long take steady cam work mm-hmm. in this film uh, that blow me away every time and like 
I've told you guys I love this movie. I've seen it several times, and just you know revisiting it again, I was I was wowed by the visual style again. I feel like that's something that filmmakers so often don't place enough importance on when they're going through the process of adapting the work is considering the way the formalism of the camera can match the formalism of the writer's style or at least evoke it in certain respects. And I think that that's one of the greatest successes of this film. And when you're talking about these long shots that almost feel like a Borges sentence, even by itself, if this story was something else, the way his camera moves feels like how it feels to read a Borges story, which is like one of the most incredible things you can do when adapting a work. The police station, which will be prominently featured in this, is uh, one of the most like impressive sets I, I can can think of in, in recent years of, of any film that I've watched. I mean, it is... Yeah so uh so detailed so layered there's so much going on that i was kind of overwhelmed because i know all of this is in here for a reason and i'm trying to like feast upon it you know whether it's even just like wanted posters on the wall or things that are happening uh to to characters in in you know the extreme periphery of the 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 widescreen image whatever is going on like that yeah you know i even got the impression that when you know at a certain point they're moving they're 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 taking this character through the police station and we really get a sense of like oh my god yeah what a labyrinth it is I, it also struck me that it's the kind of space that if they had simply taken a left instead of a right, they would have immediately gotten to where they were going, you know, ultimately, like their yeah. destination. But <laughs> but because they took the right, they they looped around this 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 whole uh, uncanny kind of structure. But but that's again, to your point, exactly the kind of bureaucratic nightmare he's also trying to build in his mm-hmm. space. It's amazing how many people are on the periphery of all of these shots in all of these spaces. This film feels so much more heavily populated than the supposed like full-on castle town <laughs> in, in the pendulum. And again, it it also like really struck me, you know, something about Alex, uh, his films that that I've always really appreciated, which is like his his crowd work and and the fact that he will have frames packed with actors and they're all doing something. They're all like playing a part. They're all, they, they mm-hmm. all kind of have a bit, they all have a gag and, and he wrenches so much out of them. You know, I, I obviously like Stuart Garden, like, you know, talks about what a blast it was to work on his film and, and they seem to have a really good time, but it, you know, from what I've often discovered with, you know, finding out more about Alex, Cox's productions, it generally seems like people are also having a blast in his films because he's having everyone, even like the smallest role, like engaged, doing something, contributing in a very meaningful way to whatever the idea of the film is that he's like trying to get across. Yeah, the way he shoots like the riot police in this movie that are prominently featured uh, is amazing. And there's a lot of, you know, dark comedy within that as they're sort of just like 
kicking people over uh, and just like marching yeah. down the street like a Greek phalanx. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah, it's really crazy. And, and really, the film kicks off and all this virtuosity kicks off. Uh, in a flashback about the Metals Depository heist, which is the first black-and-white sequence of the film. So, as mentioned before, there's flashbacks within flashbacks. So we have Trevor Annis reminiscing about the case of Lunro, and then we discover what started it all, and it all starts with this heist at the Depository, and it is, like, a, an extremely long single-shot take as we are introduced to the film's maybe villain red scarlock and he uh, at this point in this flashback we are seeing him as this like you know mask wearing kind of super villain as we're introduced to him and him and all his goons who are like dressed like jesters and other uh, curious costumes yeah. it's like something out of batman honestly yeah like. for real and they raid this depository and they're shooting people taking the place by storm, you know? And then we're introduced to a policeman <laughs> named Commander Borges, as played by Alex Cox himself. And he is the only blind detective on the city <laughs> police. And he shows up in the depository with a with a cane and confronts Red Scarlack and his gang. Yeah. And he tells them, I may be blind, but I'm an excellent shot in a very humorous <laughs> moment. Looking for someone? That's right, Scarlack. You. You're under arrest. Though blind, I'm an expert sharpshooter. Tell your men to put their weapons on the ground. And what about my women? Women. <laughs> <laughs> And this is what you're talking about, Andy. Like, everyone plays a part, too, because after they they steal everything and they shoot Commander Borges, on their way out in this, like, extremely long take that's been going on for minutes and minutes, there's, like, a gag with one of the workers who was at the beginning of the long take, and it, like, circles around to uh, include him on, you know, as they're going out, right? You know, tell the city police who was here today. Yes. You know? I, it's a virtuoso way to like kick off a film uh, and and it's very bold. It's very funny. It seems like an Alex Cox joke to introduce a character named Red Scarlack in a black and white, in a monochrome sequence, you know, sure. that that you yeah. have this character who's, who's, you know, entire persona seems to be built around the color red. And when we first see him, he's gray, you know, he's 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 the least colorful figure in the film. It's such a wonderful touch to having Alex Cox's Borges, you know, leading us through because that is something that is very typical of Borges is to have a Borges character in the short story. He very often calls himself out by name as someone who is witnessing all of these events. And funny enough, this short story does not feature a Borges character within mm -hmm. it. So that's just, a, you know, as we mentioned, there were like multiple pull stories referenced in Pit and the Pendulum. This one brings in some elements from a few others, at least that I was able to catch, like the Aleph is brought up at one point, and that's something that's not present in the original short story. So this is an interesting synthesis of certain Borgesian elements. But in particular, I think introducing himself as our Borges for this experience 
gives it a really beautiful stamp of, of like the Alex Cox stamp. So we know like who's leading us on this journey and his function as the storyteller. And especially in such an absurd, like, you know, creation of being a, a blind police officer, you know, like, I mean, it's, it's, it's so, it's so uh, indicative of like his playfulness and his, his creativity. And from there we dive into the curious case of Eric Lunro, the fancy detective played by Peter Boyle, who's kind of a, kind of a mystic, kind of an eccentric, and he is also the darling of the city's media. And that's another textual layer of the film that is a constant presence. Um, And I also got like a RoboCop vibe from some of the TV work here, but there's like, there's constant, you know, interviews and television profiles. Of all the detectives on the city force, the most renowned is without doubt Eric Lonro. The son of a famous architect and a concert pianist, he once considered the priesthood before embarking on a life of public service. I want to accept this award with humility and gratitude in the name of justice. You know, that kind of thing, and how much the press play him up, much to uh, Miguel Sandoval's chagrin. He hates all the attention that Mm -hmm. Lenroe gets as this kind of celebrity detective who's never, uh, you know, never uh, not solved a crime, right? He has, like, a perfect record, they say. (laughs) I loved all that archival footage of him, like, leading martial arts instruction and doing other things for the community that the the cult of personality they built up around him is is very very funny and also like a nice addition because that's like not something that's necessarily in the story um so it is a very clever way of building up his character because i think that's really like our entry is especially like through miguel sandoval's character just being like so frustrated and mad and upset uh, by this person and and by their their different philosophies, their different understanding of like the role that they're supposed to be playing, right? I mean, doesn't he say something, you know, uh, in in it about basically like you know police officers are, are are not supposed to be seen that much, right? We're we're supposed to like just do a job and and sort of like get out. We're not supposed to make it into this big production that that Lunro certainly enjoys making these cases uh, into. And and again, I think also part of the critique that it's of critique of law enforcement, that it's kind of like, you know, hey, you know, we can be corrupt and we can get away with a lot of shit as long as we keep a low profile. But you making a a big profile out of everything that puts a spotlight on everything we do, puts a spotlight on how we do what we do. And it's also going to make a lot of us look bad. You know, that's a big issue for him. Yeah, Lonroe is presented, yeah, as like this incorruptible kind of guy. And and obviously, as we learn over his retelling and recollections that Trevor Annis is a cop's cop, Mm -hmm. you know, he's happy to ride out the, uh, the, the tumult of the city and of the world as long as he can just stay in power and mm-hmm. be, uh, you know, be a cop and be what he is, right? Yeah. Move over to the bigger office. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> and so much of that, right, comes from the ability to tie up loose ends, to, you know, solve cases, make everything clean and make everything clear. And that is not Lunro's approach to detective work. And that's, you know, my favorite line of, you know, of course, the, the short story and then in the film is when we do get the report of the initial murder and we arrive at the scene of the crime and Trevianus mentions like, Open and shut case, isn't it, Lundro? Our friend Yarmolinsky here is to uh, deliver his paper. And who's staying right next door but Tetrarch of Galilee, who, as we all know, owns some of the finest sapphires in the entire world. Now, obviously, some villain intent on stealing those sapphires comes into Yarmolinsky's room by mistake. There's a bit of a struggle, a knife flash. Well, that's it. That's, that's got to be it. <clears throat> it's possible, but it is an interesting What's interesting got to do with anything? We're police officers. We deal in absolute reality. Reality may avoid the obligation to be interesting, but a hypothesis may not. Wrap up these books and bring them to me in headquarters. And that, I think, colors the experience of the whole film as it does in the story. This idea of trying to find meaning, to try and figure out the web, to create a matrix of meaning and try to see if there's some sort of truth within that structure because it's beautiful because it's interesting and instead of you know casting aside ideas of like a banal like clear fact-based cut and dry case here this is literature this is art this is filmmaking this is everything yeah it's not enough for us to solve the case we must also captivate you know we must also captivate the public as we do so and what Lonro discovers at the Hotel du Nord is, uh, of course, a murder, and the murder of Dr. Yarmolinsky, who is a rabbi uh, of some kind. And this is, of course, where Lonro makes his first wrong step, as it were. Uh, he looks around the room for clues, or in fact, one of the, you know, one of the cops is like, hey, something's written on the typewriter over here. And Lenro goes over and sees. It says, the first letter of the name has been spoken. And from that moment, Lenro is creating and connecting and theorizing, right? And that's, of course, when this whole investigation starts Monday, December 3rd. And from there, well, gee. It's like, uh, you know, it, 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 it made me think of like Frederick Jameson's discussion of the, the, the postmodern subject. And one of the, the hallmarks for him is, is seeking conspiracy where there is none. And, and Sandoval's mm -hmm. character, I keep uh, Trevor, Trevianus, you know, that's specifically something that he says. You know, it's his tragic flaw is that he's seeking connections where there aren't connections. As you said, Marsh, he's, he's creating connections. And this is, yes, his, his immediate frustration with Lonroe. He sees what's coming and he's like, God damn it, you know, he's going to try to build something out of this when it's just a case of fucking mis mistaken identity. As the TV magazine on him said, uh, he's often thought of as a pure thinker, and 78% of residents feel good about Lenroe. And only 36% feel good about the mayor. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. No, I mean, like, that's that's something that 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 is is laid out, I think, by uh, Trevianus when he says, like, 
we're police officers. We deal in absolute reality, not this ephemeral, abstract, uh, and yeah, the word we keep coming up with, you know, this, this creative approach to reality. And yet, I think as we've discussed, and this is really also where the, the story, I think, the story itself, the source material, like, comes into play, uh, is the idea that we've discussed several times already, that, you know, the detective as this sort of uh, philosopher, religious figure, monk, and and now, you know, yes, uh, 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 tormented artist, perhaps, as well, aesthetic that, that, you know, is seeking a higher level of meaning, perhaps, than simply who done it. And so then this crime, which occurs on December 3rd, which is both mine and Jean-Luc Godard's birthday, is then <laughs> followed up with, <laughs> is then followed up with a second crime occurring exactly one month later on January 3rd in another part of town. And then there we are again, heading to the scene of the crime, we see that the second letter of the name has been written. So we now see that there is a trend, that there is a plan behind these killings. And all the meanwhile, uh, Lenroe has buddied up with a journalist character named Alonzo Zunz, the editor of the Yiddish Zeitung. Zunz is played by Christopher Eccleston, and here he he kind of just manifests at the scene of the crime and inserts himself into uh, Lenro's investigation, and soon they are corresponding and sharing, you know, Talmudic texts and theorizing about the name of God and the Tetragrammaton and all this, like, jargon they're throwing out there uh, in these interactions. Let's just say I'm looking for a more rabbinical explanation. Do you believe this crime was perpetrated by the Hasidim? That's all for now. By the way, sons, what is the ninth attribute of God? I'm not quite sure, Inspector. I'll have to read up. And so this becomes, you know, Lenro's like pet theory that he's kind of teasing out with Zuns along the way. And these are often, you know, several times in the film, there's these very interesting like split screen phone calls between them. That's a that's a theatrical trick, you know, where you have this sort of like translucent uh, yeah. screen and depending on how it gets hit by a light source, it can either become, you know, translucent or opaque. But yeah, that's happening in camera. Yeah, oh, it's it's great. I love it. It's very cool. Yeah, it's a it's a stunning little trick, and it's something that you know we got to get a 4K restoration for it because that's one of those things that you really get to see the power of it, uh, getting to see the nice full grain there. That, you that's know? right. I'm trying to remember when it happens, but there's also that really great scene. I think it was around the second killing, maybe just afterwards, when Lunro encounters a bunch of like street toughs robbing a family and they've got like a gun pointed to a child's head and he just calms them down with his aura mm -hmm. he walks over like the messiah essentially like with his arms outstretched and is like asking what's happening telling them to put the gun down and they do they just like let the boy go they put the gun down they take their masks off and they're like our life is shit <laughs> yeah. and then he says uh, the city police have an award winning drug reduction program 
<laughs> and then that's a really and that's a, a, an insane bit there too because after Linroe disarms them and says like we'll we'll put you in the drug reduction program it cuts to Trevor Annis and he's like uh, check their resident status and deport them if they're uh, if they're not legal yeah. uh, to his second in command so even then we start to see again yeah the dividing line of the two kinds of detectives at, at play here right and that's sort of planting the seeds a little bit for for what is to come and uh yeah i don't think we want to risk getting lost in the uh you know, some of the particulars of this purposefully convoluted and dense investigation, but there's certainly a lot we, we, we can talk about talk about, right? In one thing in particular that I was I was really laughing about this time around is uh, when the detectives go to the bar in the city to further their investigation, they get a phone call from this bar and it spurs them into action and we get riot police and just like a crazy dystopia uh, going on outside, mm-hmm. just like violence. The city is literally yeah, on fire. The city's literally on fire. Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a group, there's a group of people marching yes. down one, one city street I believe sh- sh- chanting like long live the new king. Yes. And they are the they're the the paraphernalia, the things they seem to be carrying, the icons are, you know, these sort of like red themed, you know, posters and 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 banners and and you know, a sort of what is that guy, you know, the guy that did the Obama uh, yeah, Shepherd Fairy. Shepherd Fairy, yeah, like a Shepherd Fairy esque image <laughs> of like some politician, you know, when they're chanting "Long Live the New King." And down the other street is coming a group with all these sort of like religious icons and you know old paintings of you know like kings or whatever, and they're they're chanting "Long Live the Old King." And they're they're about to meet in the street, and yet down the other like alley, here comes the the riot police phalanx, you know. And there's a good like uh, Sandoval. Uh, bit too where it cuts back to him and he's like memo to all operatives i've heard about a coup in the event it is city police policy to remain neutral and then he he gives a whole spiel about like not to uh you know look i towed the line under the old king uh, not to offend the new king of course yeah uh, and you see him sort of like tiptoeing around this stuff and making you know cox making a joke of it right yeah dude his like memos that he would occasionally like fire off like in the scenes where we're back in like trevor on trevor Honest is like you know the 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 room of his mind or whatever and and in in spite of his recollections of this case and 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 Lamoreau, like that he will take the time to fire off another memo there was one from from earlier i i absolutely loved where you know it had something to do with uh, how you know word has gotten out that certain you know family members of deceased police officers have been applying for free coffins and burials and it's (laughs) actually policy that that's only issued to officers killed in the line of duty and you can get in trouble if you get caught for that and don't expect any sort of cremation on the city's dime you know this memo he's sending off it's amazing it's amazing so funny and then that's of course then further extended later in the film when he's like eventually indicted and brought before a (laughs) 
you know, the, a court. And every time he's asked any question, he covers the microphone very loudly, refers to his lawyer, you know, leans in and then leans back with a, you know, I don't recall. You know, that's as simple as that. Like, every I, I need my lawyer to tell me too. I don't recall. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's such a good those joke. Those papers may have been signed, but uh, there was a fire and all those papers were destroyed, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, it really is him just doing like narrator stand-up comedy for like half of this film and 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 I and I love it. And I can also tell that's like how they stretched this film to 90 minutes, you know. Yes. Uh for sure, but I I I love it. He's just like rolling around in this like extremely fancy you know office room set up there's a thunderstorm outside uh, there's all these objects and paraphernalia everywhere memos and books and stuff and he gets like as the film goes yes, on progressively like yeah. more and more disheveled and there's more and more papers suddenly strewn about his his cluttered desk he's playing the piano i mean him crawling around the floor of that room <laughs> surrounded by all those books is sometimes how it feels reading a Borges story where you're trying to have concrete meaning and you're trying to walk away with just the facts and you end up surrounded in a pile of 40 different books that are completely fictional with elaborately long made up titles and you feel like him you feel like you're crawling around just and you know you might be having a lot of fun but you are a bit lost mm-hmm. you know in certain respects and we should you know I do want to talk about the the sort of title uh, scene or the title concept because I think that's kind of important because there is of course uh, you know another murder and so there's been three murders in this investigation and Lenroe has his Kabbalistic theory but it's not really you know going anywhere and as a, a sort of like a sort of way to make Lenroe look ridiculous uh, Trevorianis brings in uh, a fortune teller of some kind uh, to the yeah. you know detective offices deep in the labyrinth of police HQ and she looks at the map of the murders and just simply points out in a kind of deranged way uh, but she points out like the murders form a triangle therefore it's all over mm-hmm. that's it you can you know? see it's a, it's a closed triangle. Everything perfectly equidistant from each other. And of course, Lenroe rejects this outright. And then when she leaves, he starts looking at the map himself. And he then realizes that she's wrong. But she was getting there, right? Which is that there is a shape. Yeah, it's not a triangle. It's a rhomboid that's right. It's a rhomboid. And what Lenroe theorizes is that there has been a murder in the north. There has been a murder in the east. And there has been a murder in the west. And that can only mean one thing. There will be another murder, as the sort of clues have alluded to, and it will be in the south. And we, we haven't mentioned specifically that the south is... Red Scarlet Country. And it is uh, implied in the sort of, you know, world building of the film that the South is where, like, the workers are and where the factories are. Mm-hmm. And that, although we are initially presented with Scarlack as a villain, he 
perhaps maybe is is not one at all. And I think this again speaks to Cox and his interests because I started viewing Scarlock as like a Zapata figure mm-hmm. because that's ultimately what is revealed is that like he's the guy who runs the South and he's the man of the people. And yeah, he's going on depository heists to give back, you know, to the poorest community, to the workers, to the people in his zone, right? Uh, living this He's like, like Wesley Snipes in Future Sport. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> I, I don't know about that. Yeah, I mean, know? he's really, yeah, he, he's playing up the, the, the red in the red yes. Scarlack, for sure. Absolutely. And so that, again, leads uh, Lunro... Uh, down his, you know, path to his, as we've been told in the the sort of narration of the film or the narrator of the film telling us that he disappeared. No one knows what became of Lenroe. And we, of course, see him travel to the south side. Yeah, he goes to the... Uh, Tristleroy. Yeah. Tristleroy. There's a really funny joke, too, where I think it's uh, Trevianus who initially pronounces it with, like, a proper French pronunciation, doesn't he? Yes. Where he's like, ah, Tristleroy, you know? And he gets corrected <laughs> by Lenroe. Yeah, do another little, like, <laughs> slight, slight that, that just sort of built on his character in very funny ways where... It's Trist Leroy, you know, <laughs> which seems funny again because it's uh, you know, his character is presented, you know, Lunro as the more aesthetic, the more well-read. It's one of the last things that Lunro says, I believe, to Trevianus, where you know, like it'll all be wrapped up. I haven't made an arrest yet, but I'm about to. I know exactly who it is and where they'll be and what crime is going to be committed. I'm going to intercept this killing before it takes place. And it's also, I like that it's a it's a nice touch that Cox has Lenroe figure out the shape himself because in the short, he actually gets a call from Trevianus that mentions, I got this report from some freak that mentions that it's actually going to be four points. So he's like, take a look at this. And Lenroe's like, no, this is true. And then that kind of leads to the climax of, you know, that it was an elaborate scheme that was being designed for him. But Cox's approach of having it be something that Lenroe figures out on his own because he's the one searching for meaning, I think actually gives it a bit more weight and makes more sense. Mm-hmm. But I do love when he arrives at the uh, Ville Tristeroy and the design of the interior of this place is nuts. Oh my God. Just the mirrors, the shapes of everything. I mean, it's a very literal adaptation when you read the the brief description in the short story where he says, seen at close quarters, the house belonging to the Villa Trist Leroy abounded in pointless symmetries and obsessive repetitions. And then he goes on to list, you know, what those are. But that's very much the experience of moving through this building with Peter Boyle. It's a remarkably designed set. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think he says, right, at a certain point, like, you know, it, it simply appears much bigger than it actually is. And yet, you know, like, uh, he's entirely like, as he says this thing, you know, I can make sense of what's going on here. Uh, You know, what we're seeing is his character, like kind of wandering around, like, 
like he's sleepwalking, you know, that, that, mm-hmm. you know, he's trying to explain it away and yet is entirely transfixed by the, the, yeah, the labyrinthian qualities, the impossible architecture that, that seems to be surrounding him. And again, Alex Cox does some really great things here with like split perspective and with deep focus and, and characters on different planes, because at this point it's, it's Lonro and Zunz together. Like, you know, Zunz is, is being brought along, you know, as the journalist to, to maybe perhaps, you know, cover this great arrest he's going to make. And yet there are times as they're wandering around that, that they seem to be like, uh, you know, in on two completely different planes as they're, as they're wandering around. Yeah. There's the great like high angle shot oh where, God. where yeah, Lundro, he's like leaning. Yes. Yeah. He's like leaning against this like railing, you know, on like, you know, it seems like maybe two floors above this big, like sort of open courtyard area. And, and down there is like Zunz. And, uh, it reminded me a lot of like Citizen Kane. And I wonder if in that case, it was pulled off the way that they did it in Citizen Kane with like a matte shot, because they seem to both be in like perfect focus. And yet they are separated by almost like a hundred feet. It looks like it's an incredible set piece, like the whole thing from start to finish, just the what the repetition, you know, again, it, it really is dizzying. And it is, yes, evoking Borges in that formal way that's, like, so appropriate. And it, it's very funny, too, because, like, as they're, they continually, like, they're just wandering in this space that seems to have no kind of, like, logic to it uh, in that sense, Zunz is like, all right, dude, like... Give it up, Lonzo. It's a lost cause, you know it. Only lost causes are of interest to a gentleman. <laughs> and yeah, then they, they, they sort of like in this space that seems somewhat like frozen in time, uh, wind up in, in again, you know, another like incredible bit of scene construction, this, this weird spiral staircase that has led up to this room. I don't even know how to describe that room. Like where the <laughs> fuck are they? Yeah, there's like stained glass windows, but they're really on this like giant spotlit pedestal. And it, yeah, it has this very like obviously religious kind of quality to it, but it is very, yeah, otherworldly at the same time. Uh, and the altar of the mind, perhaps. And defi- definitely, uh, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where we, you know, the whole thing is revealed, you know? Do we want to reveal it? Because it is kind of a nah, twist, right? You know? Yeah. It's it's a it's a you know I think it's a good twist you know for those who've never read the story for those who haven't seen this film I I think you know this is the point that we should lead them to and and really the journey from this point on needs to be their own that's uh, I I agree we'll let it remain a mystery because it is one of the great mystery resolutions um, both in short story and in film. Yeah, I mean, we want people to see the movie, you know, we, in this case. Yeah, exactly. That's right. And when they want them to see the 4K restoration. That's there. right. We're, We're businessmen now. You know, we got to start thinking like the band brothers, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's everything you would want from, I think, an adaptation like this. It's, you know, it's faithful in its own way, and it's totally an, an Alex Cox film. I think it's like a, a perfect mm-hmm. marriage 
between these sensibilities and and sensibilities that play really well off of each other, I think. Because I was even thinking again about Three Businessmen, a film where people just like wander around the world in one night, you know? Cox is no mm -hmm. stranger to playing with space in that way, in a way that's, you know, disorienting and interesting and, and engaging. Yeah, I mean, I think both of these films scratched the exact itch I was looking for, both in terms of their methods for adapting a short, whether that be expanding on a structure already in place, or in the case of Pit and the Pendulum, creating an entirely new narrative that ends up where the short story itself ends up. That in and of itself was an interesting case study, but then at the same time, exactly what you're saying about Death in the Compass applies, I think, to Pit and the Pendulum to varying degrees, and that's that both of these adaptations still feel like works of the artists who are making the films. They feel like an actual meaning of the minds. They're not just trying to be overly literal adaptations that are just trying to bring what they read to life, but instead they're presenting us with their reading of the text and the meaning that they found in the texts. And I think in that sense, both films are very successful because they are personal works. And, you know, we, we might have already made this point, so, you know, not to be redundant, but again, I think as you expressed in your intro, it's, it's the big delineation uh, creatively between adapting short stories and adapting novels that you put so eloquently, you know, the difference between addition and, and subtraction, you know, here in, in, in adapting short stories, the work for the filmmaker, the work for the screenwriter, the director, the artists is, is to build. And, and again, as you beautifully put it, this, this meeting of the minds. I love that, you know, because it's, it's true that, that you in adapting a short, like really need to bring, uh, something of your own into that, you know, in order to, to, to elevate mm -hmm. the material in that way. Well, yeah, well, these were ours. These were our little short stories for you. Uh, Ryan, you know, when you think of great short stories, in cinema, what comes to mind for you? Well, it's so funny enough, I'm going to do like a little something weird here. I'm actually picking a film where I haven't read the short story, <laughs> but I think I can get a sense of what the short story may have been like, and that's something I find so interesting about the film. And that's the film from 1985, Smooth Talk, which is a meeting of the minds of two different Joyces. There's Joyce Chopra, the filmmaker, and Joyce Carol Oates, who wrote the short story. And the film stars Laura Dern. It's like a an odd sort of off-kilter suspense film. It's at times unclassifiable. It's both like a portrait of growing up and of like your a woman's relationship with her mother, but then at the same time there's something sinister brewing underneath it all. And there's this extended scene that is, you know, again, I'm this is bad of me. I haven't read the short story, but I'm assuming the short story is maybe the scene with some extra stuff like added around it. But it's a it's a remarkable film. It's an odd film. It's one that in its design unexpected at least when I was going into it um, and it's something I recommend everybody check out and then I would also note you know just as an odd little thing I would love I would love for someone out there maybe it could even be one of us to adapt 
the William Gass short story, The Peterson Kid, uh, which is my favorite short story and I think the best thing ever written about snow. And I think it would make a great film you uh, if do it. put into the right hands. Yeah, or James Benning or somebody. <laughs> it, the, 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 <laughs> you or James Benning. Yeah, <laughs> yeah me or James Benning. Those I are think the two are the options. only people that qualified. But yeah, maybe one day I'll make The Peterson Kid and then we can talk about the uh, <laughs> my efforts <laughs> at adapting William Gass would just be like an amusing thing. Um but yeah, those, that's what I would I would tell people to check out. Read The Peterson Kid and then also have fun watching Smooth Talk and perhaps reading The Joy Story. Can't vouch for the story, haven't read it, but... Uh, Get to it. But yeah, well, thank you both for this. This was, a, this was a great pairing. And now I will hope to return the favor for you, Marsh, with whatever your theme is for next week. So what do you got for us? Well, I've been, uh, I've been very busy lately. I've been a little stressed out. And so I was looking to, to maybe, maybe lighten the mood a bit, maybe get some laughs in here. And, uh, you know, me, I can't resist a a sort of seasonal topic, even if it's a, a sort of a joke. And so next week's topic is April fools. And I want you to bring me movies about fools. Great. I know many fools. I know a few right here. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Grand Inquisitor himself said she's innocent. The baker and his wife are free to go, but the others... There will always be others.